Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us is Roger Montgomery, Chief Investment Officer at Montgomery Investments. Roger, good evening and welcome back to Nightlife. Good to be with you, Philip. Well, this Silicon Valley bank collapse, it's, it's, look, it's not a massive bank. It's the 16th largest, apparently, in the United States, which doesn't make it that big. But still, it's the largest bank failure since the GFC. Last Friday, bank regulators closed the bank. It's a bank for startups and technology companies. It's based in Santa Clara, California. Uh, how did it happen? What does it mean for other banks, Roger? Well, let's start by just referencing the size. So during the GFC, the biggest bank to collapse was a bank called Washington Mutual Bank. They had $307 billion of assets. Um, this is Silicon Valley Bank had 209 or 212, depending on who you talk to, um, $209 billion of assets. So you're right, it is the second biggest since the GFC, and it's about $100 billion short of the size of Washington Mutual, which was the biggest bank to collapse um, uh, during the during the GFC. So, so let's take a step back. What actually happened? Well, this particular bank was, I guess, uniquely uh, concentrated uh, not only in one geography, Silicon Valley, but also in one industry, and that is technology or innovative companies backed by private equity and or venture capital. And um, the, the tech sector basically provided all the bank's funding. So banks are funded by deposits. Deposits are the bank's liability. They, they, you're lending, when you deposit money with a bank, you're in fact lending them your money. Mm-hmm. And then they go and lend that out. And the loans that they create with your money uh, are there is their assets or is their book, and so when I talked earlier, mentioned earlier, two hundred nine billion dollars of assets. That's the amount of money that they had lent out, and they lent. It was an interesting mix of what they lent to. About fifty six percent of it was um, capital, uh, private equity or venture capital call lines of credit. They had about fourteen percent in mortgages. Um, and they were mostly mortgages to innovation economy influencers, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, they had about 2% of their assets in premium wine, uh, and then they had another uh, 20 to 21% as loans to innovation companies, quote-unquote. So what they did is they took money, uh, de- they took deposits from customers and their short-term liabilities with floating rates of interest, and then they invested the money in loans. But a lot of the money, only about, believe it or not, only about one-third of the money was actually in loans. The rest of it was invested in market securities. Mm-hmm. Now, normally that might not be a problem, uh, except that, because this bank had less than $250 billion of assets, it didn't need to report what is called a common, common tier one equity adjusted for unrealized losses. So when, when, you, when you invest in securities, let's say you invest in the stock market, for example, um, those shares go up and down on a daily basis. You don't tell your accountant you've made a loss 
until you actually sell the shares. But in the interim, they go up and down and they're revalued uh, at, at higher levels or lower levels, depending on how the market's performing. Now, in, in the United States in 2018, Donald Trump raised the level from $50 billion to $250 billion, the point at which banks have to report those tier one capital ratios adjusted for unrealized losses on security. So if you had more than $250 billion of assets, you had to report your adjusted uh, capital ratios. Uh, if you had less than that, you didn't have to report the adjusted amount. So there was more transparency amongst the bigger banks. And believe it or not, it's reported that this particular bank, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, actually was one of the most uh, vocal lobbyists for raising the level to $250 billion, and they remained under it. Now, so therefore, there's not as much transparency about what their losses might be uh, if they were to realise those losses on the investments that they made. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that when there was a run on their deposits, and the reason why there was a run on deposits, it wasn't because anybody had uh, doubts about the um, viability of the bank. Remember I said earlier, most of their customers were technology and innovation companies yeah. who had deposited their cash with the bank. The problem was, and we talked about this last year, I don't know if you remember this, I said to you that one of the things, one of the thing, one of the outflowings or one of the second order uh, consequences of rising interest rates will be all of these profitless prosperity companies, all of these innovative tech companies that don't make a profit, what they're going to be needing to do is raising more money to fund their employees because they don't make a profit. They can't self-fund. And so it's only through the altruism of shareholders and private equity investors um, who are looking for a higher return than zero, which was the return mm. they were getting on their bank accounts. They were investing in these companies. But of course, once interest rates go up, the spigot gets turned off. You know, the tap for funding these companies is turned off. People don't have the appetite to fund them anymore and they're on their own. And so they had to dip into their deposits with Silicon Valley Bank. And last year, $22 billion of deposits were withdrawn. Yeah. And then in the first three, first three months of this year, another $30 billion of deposits <laughs> that's, were withdrawn. That's the thing with banking, isn't it? It's, it's actually a quite uh, – I mean, people might – think uh, they can't be right but ba banking can be extremely tricky and risky business to run actually because it's fine if you get all your investments right and the oil just keeps you know churning around and the system keeps t ticking over but of course if you don't get it right and all of a sudden people want to take their money out in in too large a number the the the, the thing collapses don't you it, it's a, well, well, it can be a, a difficult business to run <laughs> so let's just quickly just a segue to Australian banks for a minute. You might remember we also talked last year about how there is so much vested interest in Australian property not falling. Mm. Um, and that's because the entire financial system is dependent on the banks and the banks have lent most of their money to what? Australian housing. Mm. And so the government's not incentivized to see housing fall because they've incentivized everybody to get into housing, you know, through their first home buyers grants and all of those sorts of incentives. Um, 
their regulators don't want to see uh, house prices fall and the banks don't want to see house prices fall. And that's why during the COVID, during the first COVID lockdown, when, you know, there were three or four million people out of work, the banks just said, you know what, everyone just take, everyone cool their heels, everyone have a holiday, you don't have to pay your loans back, we'll accrue the interest but just have a rest from paying your loans back for now. The last thing you're going to see is the banks scooping up everyone's houses who can't pay their mortgages and then dump them on the market at a discounted price because they're shooting themselves in the foot. So you're right. There is a bit of a confidence game going on, you know, with the investments that they make. And fortunately in Australia, we have a very secure system. You know, the capital adequacy ratios are some of the toughest in the world. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's no no one has no one needs to be concerned about the Australian banking system, but because all the deposits for Silicon Valley Bank were being withdrawn, they were being forced to sell these investments that they'd made at a loss. So they were realising these losses, and then of course last week, what happened at the end of last week is they tried to raise money to cover the loss on the securities that they had to sell to pay people their deposits. Um, and investors worked out, hang on a sec, I'm going to give you $1.8 billion to cover your loss. But of course, if you get more withdrawals, you're going to have to sell more at a loss. There's going to, loss is going to be bigger. And of course, the rest is history. You know, they, they yeah. didn't, they weren't able to do that. And so the next thing that happened is people were worried, well, is this, is this going to cause contagion? Is this going to be another? Is it going to spread? Hmm. Is it going to spread? And, and, of course, we've heard, you know, Joe Biden uh, and Janet Yellen, uh, everyone came out over the weekend and really worked hard to ensure that, uh, firstly, everyone's deposits at Silicon Valley Bank were, uh, were made, guaranteed. Would be made whole like they were guaranteed. Would be guaranteed. Yeah. Even, if the, even if they weren't insured. So there's a – in the US they have what's called the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and so a portion of the deposits – uh, in the case of um, Silicon Valley Bank, about $21 billion were insured. And normally, that's all that would be covered. But I think Joe Biden and others worked out and the regulators worked out, including Treasury and the US Federal Reserve, they worked out that if they didn't make whole everyone's deposits, they could have another GFC on their hands, another financial crisis. So they said, look, everyone's looked after. Don't worry. Everyone's money is protected and you'll be fine. And that breathed a sigh of a relief amongst a lot of technology companies that mm. thought they would have to sack a lot of people because they've lost their deposits. And even in Australia, we've got some tech companies and some private equity funds that have money deposited with SVB and they'll all be protected. And mm. so we won't So we're not going to see a spread. Contagion. We're not going to spread of that contagion here, in other words, no. No, no, we won't. In fact, in the stock market um, yesterday, uh, you know, Apple was up. 1.3%, Microsoft was up 2% or just over 2%. It was these tiny little regional banks or these mid-tier mm. regional banks like US Bank Corp, Truist Financial Corporation. Another one went bust, uh, by the way, wasn't there? There was another bank that went there bust. There were two. Two, two a signature bank, yeah. I think. It was one that... There was, yeah, Silvergate, which was a banker to, um, that went bust actually before Silicon Valley Bank. That went bust last week, earlier last week. Um, and it lent money to cryptocurrency uh, exchanges and investors. And then there was Signature Bank, which was a, a banker to uh, lawyers. 
and all have been made whole by um, the Federal Reserve, Treasury, and um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Mm. So, so it really is contained, and the stock market has probably quite correctly marked down. You know, some of these banks like Huntington Bank Share Incorporated, it was down seventeen percent yesterday. Uh, M&T Bank Corporation was down 3 or 4%. PNC was down 5%. But really, the rest of the market, you know, we're just plotted along and did its own thing. Although the market's, yeah, the market's been down over the last few yes. days. Do you think, and it seems off the back of this, do you think that's likely to be sustained or are we going to see a bounce well, back here? The, the stock market will do what the stock market's going to do, but it won't be <laughs> because, true. if it goes down, it won't be because there's a fear of contagion. I think... I think initially the market was scared, but mm. now you know it's only the regional banks that people are nervous about. It isn't, uh, it isn't really the rest of the market. So I think at the moment, investors, particularly if we look at last night's activity, uh, you know Amazon up two percent, Tesla up 0.6. You know the markets, the markets really worked out. It's it's energy. You know the economy is probably slowing down. Um, oh, and that brings me to another point, uh, which we haven't discussed yet. Bets about um, interest rates going up uh, at a, at an accelerated rate. Yeah, because is what we because I, I just wanted to ask you about that because in 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 part the this is uh, Roger Montgomery who's with us, chief investment officer of Montgomery Investments. I was going to say, Roger, the this whole interest rate issue and and the and the complete crisis in the bond market. Yes, I mean that's been behind the problems that Silicon Valley Bank had too. Yes, yeah, so. Yeah, so let me explain what's been so, going so, on. So, just so, let me finish my question by saying: sure. So, will you do? Does this collapse? Do you think send a signal to the Federal Reserve that, well, maybe we should ease off on these interest rate rises because look what we've done to the bond market. This is no good. We we should we maybe we should stop this. Well, the the bets are now, and there's been a real pivot, a real shift in in expectations. The, the 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 bet is now that the U.S. Federal Reserve will will pause mm-hmm. or or reconsider further rate rises, and it was only the start of last week uh, that Jerome Powell, who's the chair of the Federal Reserve, was was saying, "Look, the market's got it wrong. Uh, you've all been saying you've all been thinking I'm going to slow down the pace of increases. That's wrong." Inflation is still a very real concern. I may accelerate rate increases. And if you're all thinking like the Federal Reserve was in December, that the terminal rate of interest will be 5.25%, well, it's going to be higher than that. It could even be 6%. But now the bets, so so that everyone recalibrated, stocks sold off, um, bond, bond rates uh, actually came down because the but short-term interest rates went up. And so there was quite a lot of volatility last week. And then, of course, Silicon Valley Bank happened. Now all that's being reversed again. And the expectation is that Jerome Powell may not actually raise rates significantly because clearly the financial system, you know, is is running very a very, you know, close to the bone in terms of um, it, the the possibility of a, a more serious event, a more mm. serious uh, financial event. My texter says, uh, well, a couple of texts here. Uh, why did the so why did the ASX show a negative return over the last few days and down one point five percent today? And answer, please. My super depends on this. <laughs> so, so what we saw was uh, a, a 
Okay, the, the problem is in the United States, the S&P 500 index has a relatively low weighting to financials. I think it's about 5 or 6% to financials. Our financial sector is about 20% of our index. And so the banks went down in the United States, but that only affected the market slightly because it's only a, a relatively small weighting to the index. But our banks went down in sympathy, but they're also 20% uh, of our market. And so the, it has a bigger effect when the banks fall in Australia than when the banks fall in the United States. Sure. Okay. And that's that's why we saw the, a bigger slide in our index. But it's likely the bounce, you, I mean, look, <laughs> we're not here to make predictions about the stock exchange, but it's also likely the bounce back, well, in, we back survived, again. Yeah. We survived the, the global financial crisis. That's right. So it's, it always it always surprises me how short our memories are. You know, everyone says, oh, there's going to be a crisis, quick sell. Well, hang on a sec, that's a buying opportunity. It was last time, it was the time before that, and the time before that. So, look, if we do mm. get any kind of panic selling and people are throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you know, that's the time to unzip your wallet and get the cash out and start investing again. Jess from Dulles Shell says, your description of the bank's risky business sounds scarily similar to your classic Ponzi scheme. <laughs> well, well, I mean, in a sense, uh, look, oh, I see what Jess is saying here, but that is that is that the bank's okay until everyone wants their money back, which is a, in a classic Ponzi scheme, of course. That's when it all comes undone. But... The, the, yes, well, the bank's not running a Ponzi scheme, though. Are no, they? because a Ponzi scheme is a Ponzi scheme is paying people a very high return from other people's money. Yeah, and they're not doing that. They're earning they're earning a return on the mortgages uh, that they that they write, uh, and then that return is being distributed partly to deposit holders as as an interest rate return, which is obviously going to be lower hmm. than the return they receive. And then the rest of the returns, of course, go to paying salaries and if anything's left over it it pays yeah. uh, a dividend to it's the It's not shareholders. actually it's not actually a Ponzi scheme. In a, in a Ponzi scheme that's it's right the, the, the funds aren't invested the funds that are deposited are just used to play, pay ridiculous returns to those yeah, new to, depositors until yeah, until right. the music stops at some point. Eventually it has to. Uh, and the other big thing Phil, yeah, that's on, happened is on. the other big thing that's happened is the yield curve so a, a quick uh, yield curve 101 uh, course Yield curves are the when you plot on the horizontal axis, on the x-axis, time, and then you plot on the vertical axis, the y-axis, you plot uh, interest rates. Normally, interest, short-term interest rates, interest rates overnight and 30-day and 60-day interest rates tend to be lower than long-term interest rates, for example, 10-year and 30-year bonds, because investors typically want a higher rate of return to compensate them for the unknown over mm. a longer period of time. Okay. But what we have at the moment is a negative or an inverted yield curve, and that's typically a predictor of a recession. And and after the SB, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, uh, that yield curve has become even more inverted, suggesting more likely or, or more people are believing that there'll be a recession as a consequence of these high rates in the short term. Let's take a call. Uh, Philip from Bogola Beach. Hi, Philip. Uh, good evening, guys. How are you? Can you hear me okay? Yes, well, thank you. Where are you going? Good. Uh, you've actually touched on the question, which is, can you explain to me and the listeners the uh, looking at the Australian banking sector that's had a bit of a correction in the last maybe few weeks yep. um is that linked to the american situation or is it more of our economy and and really because 
most of the listeners will be holding good spread of bank stocks and when will australia when will there be a return to where the australian banks were maybe several months ago yeah so the, that the look that was led by the commonwealth bank during reporting season they reported a record result uh, and analysts believe it or not um uh, believed that that was as good as it was going to get uh, and so there was a lot of selling of the banks believing that their net interest margin, the difference between the interest that they charge on mortgages and what they pay for deposits, that net interest margin, uh, which was, uh, I think, uh, and, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was a record net interest margin as well. Um, that was as good as it was going to get. And so investors started selling the banks, believing that uh, the good times are over and it's going to get a little bit tougher from here. So it really was unrelated to what was happening in the United States and that really started the sell-off for the banks. And, and is it, are your view or is the markets um, being over, overly cautious? Well, it's a really, really difficult thing to under, to predict the changes in sentiment. You know, I could say, I could come out tomorrow as the, Governor of the Reserve Bank, and I could say, you and I could have a have a, a glass of wine tonight. I'm the Governor of the Reserve Bank, and I might tell you it wouldn't be appropriate, by the way. But I might say to you tomorrow, I'm coming out, and I'm actually going to cut interest rates. That would be you would expect that the stock market would rally enormously and go up a lot if if I said that tomorrow. And you might put some bets on tonight, believing that that's going to happen. And then you wake up tomorrow, I do exactly what I said I was going to do, and the market does something completely unexpected. We, we just can't predict how markets are going to react to things that otherwise seem entirely predictable. Uh, the sentiment and the response to events is, is, is not predictable. And so it's very, very hard hmm. to know exactly what stock prices, bank stock prices are going to do, even if we know what they're going to report. <laughs> I for this segment great job guys thank you good on you thanks Philip. thank you very yeah, much no, I, I, thank you roger oh, thank you roger said, that's, that's always yeah, occurred Phil, to me Phil, exactly right i've not heard anyone say uh so succinctly as that how, how what a nutcase the market is in a way yeah well you know benjamin graham benjamin graham who really is the sort of the founding father of security analysis you know mm. the intellectual dean of wall street um he he said years and years ago he gave an, a, a, an allegory if you like uh, about the stock market, and he called it Mr. Market. He basically described uh, somebody who is bipolar, you know, and, uh, you know, sometimes they can only see doom and gloom and they're willing to sell you their shares at a very low price. Other times they can only see bright prospects and, um, mm. and they're willing to pay a very high price for your shares. Uh, you know, the, the secret is uh, to take advantage of their wallet, not their, not, not their wisdom. <laughs> so, okay. All right. Uh, Call. And that's the way to think of the stock market. Calls, uh, Steve in Perth. Hello, Steve. Oh, hello. Um, what a joyous occasion it is to be here. <laughs> Pleasure to have you on, Steve. What's the, now, look, what's the occasion know, of your joy? Go on. <laughs> well, look, I'm turned 60 and I'm an aged burner, and after many struggles, I've finally paid off my house. Right. Do I uh, well invest in... Do I? Yes. Um, in Perth, cheaper than Adelaide. How can you believe that? Um that uh, do you invest in property or shares or sit on your hands? Well, I think sitting on your hands is a very expensive exercise if you have a long-term perspective. So um, it's very hard to predict what things are going to do next week, next month and next year. It's a lot easier to say, 
look, I think property in Australia will do very well over the next 10 or 15 years. Share market will do very well over the next 10 or 15 years. If your time frame is long enough, uh, then uh, you're going to do well provided, and you know, I've written a whole book on this, but provided you focus on quality. Um, so, you know, the longer you stay invested in junk, the worse your return is going to be. Um, time is the friend of uh, a quality investment. Mm. And the longer you're invested in quality, uh, the better the better you'll end up. Okay, Dirk. Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, some text questions here too. Please ask Roger, what's going to happen to interest rates in Australia when the federal government is going to compete with private companies for funds to fund the billions for our massive defence spending for nuclear submarines, says Haig. And Brent says, just some irrelevant relevant information. The submarine handshake deal is about double the value of Australia's highest market capitalised company, BHP. Yeah, we just print money. Um, the short answer is the government will just print money, right? I mean, that, we just, exactly. We just print money. Yeah, yeah we print yeah. money. And, and who knows what side deals have been done between the United States and Australia in terms of buying the bonds that we issue to fund... Oh, that's, a, uh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. 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 Well, I thought about that, and I thought, gosh, everyone's worried about how much it's going to cost. You know, who knows what the side? There's a side deal somewhere where the US says, "You buy our subs, and we'll buy your bonds." That's interesting because that's right because the US can't afford this whole deal to fail. So, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's you know it's all it's all you know in the national interest, right? So it's um it's an easy sell. Steve on the Sunshine Coast. Hi, Steve. Oh, good day, Phil. Roger, how are you? Guys, well, thank you. Well, thanks, Steve. Always good to listen to a Tuesday night. Very interesting. Um, yeah, look, one point that I think that you might have the, the obvious point is the share market. I've, you know, I've been doing the share market for thirty years, and I only invest in stuff with a good balance sheet, low debt, good yield. You know, I keep away from companies like Domino's that they're all a women of prayer and and all you know debt and 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 growth and and you know. It's just a deck of cards waiting to happen, you know. So I keep stick to stuff with good balance sheets. But I've pulled most of my stuff out of shares, and same with super at the moment, because but, you know, even the good companies are only paying about the same as interest rates now. So in, yeah, a, in a rising a interest rate market, why wouldn't... And look, if shares, theoretically, guys, say, shares, uh, interest rates double, shares at half, because you can get there's twice as much more temptation to put your money into cash. Into cash, yeah. No risk. So... Uh, yeah, why, why, why haven't you mentioned that as a as a catalyst for the share market falling? It's you know we've been talking about banks and failing and all this, but surely you know this this share market's been slowly uh, slowing down over a period of weeks now, and it's not looking too strong for a recovery with the interest rates still rising, guys. Hmm. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, mate. Look, um, comparing the earnings yield of stocks to the bond yield, um, you know, is a is a you know t- tried and tested way for deciding whether the stock market is cheap or not. And and Philip, what Steve's saying is that you know there's more risk in the stock market than there is in cash, and so you want to get a much higher return uh, or earnings yield um, to compensate you for that risk. Therefore, you want to pay lower prices when interest rates go up. And we've talked about this before. There. Now, interest rates act like gravity on the value of assets. So as interest rates go up, the gravitational force gets stronger and it pulls asset prices down. So Steve's right about that. Um, the only problem, of course, is uh, you can be too smart by half 
uh, and uh, and you know you you believe that this time interest rates are higher, the stocks are going to fall, and they did all of last year. Of course, it's only in January that stocks bounced, and then February they've given up. February March they've given up most of those um, January gains. So we're still you know we're still down from our all time highs. So it's just it's just a tricky balancing act to try and get it right in the short term. I just find it too hard, and I'd rather just invest, keep investing and invest more when stocks are in fact cheap. I just don't know when they're going to be cheap and I don't know when they're going to run. And to Steve's point about looking for strong balance sheets, that's absolutely correct. Focusing just on high yield, though, can be a bit dangerous. Um, I'll give you an example. Back in 2013, Telstra had a yield of 6.25% um, and uh, its share price at the time was about $4.50. CSL, on the other hand, had a yield of 2.25%, so a significantly lower yield than Telstra, and its shares were trading at about $52 at the time. Now, if you'd put $100,000 in Telstra, you would have earned $6,250 interest back in 2013. If you put $100,000 in CSL, you would have only got $2,200 of interest, uh, sorry, of dividends. Mm-hmm. But fast forward to, hang on a sec, fast forward. I'll just let me finish the example. Right. And then fast forward to today, your $100,000 in Telstra, which was earning you $6,250, is now worth $92,000. And the dividend's been cut, and it's only paying you $3,700. And the CSL shares, you put $100,000 into that, they're worth $600,000 now. And now you're earning triple the, uh, triple the dividend as well. So look, I'm I'm picking precise examples, but the point is you've got to be careful just focusing on the yield. The yield by itself is not enough to decide a good investment. That's all. Steve? I agree, fellas, but look, you mentioned January, right? That might have been the dead cat bounce, right? You said January things went back up. I was still wary at that point. Telstra I try to keep away from because they've still got a lot of debt. And, you know, I haven't got a good feel about them in their market because they're not a monopoly anymore. So you've still got to have a bit of gut feel as well as a balance sheet. And, you know, you can't just go purely on you. I agree there. Yeah, good. No, that's right. And and, um, you know what you want to focus on is companies that are going to be bigger in the future than they are today. And if you get a good yield and a good balance sheet and the company is going to sell more widgets in the future or raise, be able to raise the price of its widgets in the future, uh, you'll you'll, you'll do pretty well. The market... Day to day will go up and down, but good quality businesses over the long run will do very, very well, as they've done in the past. Finally, guys, I just reckon in the next few months, a good time to park your money in a safe bet, get 5%, 4-5% interest, and just let it happen, because there'll be plenty of time to ride the train on the way back up. <laughs> I'll mark that down, and we'll have a chat about that in a couple of months' time. Thanks for the tip, Steve. Good on you. Roger Montgomery is with us from Montgomery Investments. We're talking about the finance markets and so on. We can't give individual personal financial advice, uh, but we can obviously comment on uh, on trends and, uh, and, and strategies. Martin says, Phil and Roger, how does Roger define and identify quality stocks? Uh, look, the, there's a – we could speak you've, for you've written a, a, book a couple about, of you've hours. You've written a book about that. this. <laughs> yes, right. I wrote a book about it called Valuable yeah. um, and I spent you know several chapters talking about quality. But in a nutshell, what you want to do is find businesses – that can generate very, very high rates of return on their equity capital. So, you know, the best way for me to describe it or the easiest, simplest explanation I can give is to say, I want to buy a business that if I put $100 into it, 
it's going to generate $20, not $2. Um, and so for every dollar of earnings, the other way to think about it, flip it on its head, for every dollar of earnings, I want to put in the smallest amount that I possibly can to generate that dollar of earnings. Uh, and that will give me a very high rate of earnings. So really what we're trying to find is a business that can sustain high rates of return on equity capital. Um, and to be able to sustain that, remember, if a company's generating 20 or 30 or 40% returns on capital, it's going to attract competition. And the first thing competitors do is they cut prices for the same service. And, and if customers leave my business, which was generating 30 or 40% returns because somebody else is offering a cheaper price, well, I'm not going to be able to sustain a high rate of return. So if you find businesses that for many, many years have been generating high rates of return, they've got something sustainable, something that protects them from competition. So think about um, REA Group, for example, which owns the realestate.com.au website. There are 83 websites in Australia that allow people to list their homes for sale for free. And REA charges the most. And despite charging the most, people who want to sell their house have to put it on that website. And even though they charge the most, they still get more listings than any other website. And so that is the definition of a quality business. Um, people will cross the road to buy, the, buy REA's product, even though it's more expensive. Mm. And that means they've got something that can defend those very high rates of return, and that's what you're looking for. Okay. All right, one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number. John from Mornington says, my fixed home loan rate matures next month. Do I lock in fixed again? Oh, that's a, that is a very tough question. I mean, in general, what do you think about it? a very tough question. Hmm. Yeah, look, um, you might remember I, I said on the show that uh, when, when fixed rates were at 1.98% for four years, I said, look, I don't think they're going to get much cheaper than this. Uh, it, it's time to lock in. Um, it's a little bit tougher now because if we get a recession, and a lot of people are predicting a recession, then rates will come down. Uh, and so uh, it's a lot tougher now to decide whether or not you lock in. I, if it was me and my money, and I'm not providing any advice, no, I'm just not. suggesting what mm -hmm. I, I would do, um, I, I might lock in maybe a third, uh, but my expectation would be that we'll see, we'll see rates stabilise for a period of time while the lagged effects of the rate rises are fed through. But then at some point, we might see rate cuts again. Uh, and if that happens, then you'd be able to lock in at a lower rate. Yeah. Okay. All right. Look, it's just impossible to predict. Nobody yeah, knows. I know. James from Newcastle. Hi, James. Hello. How are you? Well, thanks. That's good. Uh, I have a self-managed super fund with a diversified pool of investments some of which are in the bank hybrid notes. Uh, previously, yep. these notes would mature and the bank would offer you a replacement note for it. Yep. But about 12 months ago, the, the government changed the rules and they can no longer offer you the replacement and you have to then go out to a broking house and pay them a fee. What was the reasoning behind this happening? Well, I don't... I don't I don't even recall that change being made. So I can't comment on that, unfortunately. Mm. Sorry about that. Sorry, James. Um, all right, one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number. Now, the, you mentioned the word recession, uh, Roger. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it inevitable, do you think, that the US falls into economic recession? And, uh, and what about Australia? 
Well, if you believe the bond yield curve, um, which is inverted, and in fact, 90% of the yield curve is inverted, every single time in history since, well, at least since the 1970s, every time more than 50% of the yield curve was inverted, a recession followed. Um, every single time, there were eight instances um, where the uh, 10-year yield minus the three-month yield spread uh, signalled a recession. Uh, there were eight of those, and all eight were followed by recession. In fact, there have been no other recessions. In other words, every one of them was preceded by a negative reading on that yield curve, and that's what we've got at the moment. So if you believe that history repeats, if not repeating it rhymes, mm. then we should get a recession some point in the next 12 or 18 months in the United States. Um, there are those who are saying, no, this time's unique, this time's different, we won't. Uh, but at the moment, all the indicators are suggesting that there's going to be a recession. And one of the big investment banks in Australia, in fact, this week, uh, yesterday, um, said that, uh, well, they came out and revised their outlook for uh, the Australian economy uh, and said that the, the, the most probable outcome now is a recession uh, and they expect the economy to stall and they're expecting real GDP growth next year, FY24, of just 0.3% year on year. Um, and clearly that's well below trend growth. Um, and it's probably, you know, arguably that's, you know, without, without quoting the bank, um, arguably it's probably what's needed to bring inflation back to the Reserve Bank of Australia's target band. Um, so that particular investment bank is assigning now a 60% probability of recession up from their previous forecast of about 40% probability. Mm. So it looks like a recession is, you know, a recession is possible in the US uh, or probable in the US and, and increasingly possible in Australia uh, over the next little while. I'm an optimist. I'd like to think that um, the bank's uh, and the, the central banks, I mean to say, uh, are going to actually start quantitative easing before we get to uh, a severe recession, and they'll want to support financial markets. So even though they're talking a tough game on interest rates, I think in the background, um, their quantitative easing will, will reassert itself, and they'll start increasing their balance sheet by buying bonds uh, and uh, injecting liquidity into markets and economies. Um, and it's also the case that Last year was really, really volatile. And historically, what we know about volatility is there's two types. There's wild volatility and then there's normal volatility. We tend to have very long periods of normal volatility interspersed by short bouts of extreme or wild volatility. But when you're, when you're just coming out of that wild volatility, you think it's going to continue. And in fact, you often don't see that uh, normal volatility has returned. And when, when we're in a period of normal volatility, Good news is good news and bad news is bad news. Good companies do well, the share price goes up. Bad companies do poorly and the share prices go down. In fact, we just described that that's what happened last night in the market. You know, the banks, there's some bad news. Their share prices went down. There wasn't really any bad news for Apple and Microsoft and others. So the share prices went up. And that's, that's kind of normal. That's what you expect to see in markets. But, of course, people still fear what they've just come out of, you know. It's like when, I don't know, for those who live in the country, you know, when you see a snake, um, after you've seen a snake up close, every stick is a snake for the rest of the day mm. and you see more snakes than they're actually snakes. 
And uh, it's the same thing. It's the same thing in the stock market. You get some volatility. You think, oh, gee, it's going to be like this for a while now. Um, and in fact, it isn't. Mm. Uh, we've, we've headed into a normal period. Uh, is it time for investors to consider private debt? An asset well, class that those who want income shouldn't uh, or possibly can no longer afford to ignore. After all, the Australian economy is, despite all the publicity, actually growing, isn't it? Yeah, it's growing at 2.7% at the moment. So mm. so this private debt um, topic is one that is gaining a lot of interest and a lot more uh, a lot more press. And that's because last year, you know, you've, you've heard of this idea of a balanced portfolio or conservative portfolio that's 60% invested in bonds and 40% invested in shares. Uh, and they're you know, often referred to as balanced portfolios or, or all-weather portfolios. Well, last year, guess what? The correlation between bonds and equities was very, very high, uh, and uh, they both fell. And so that 60% invested in bonds that was supposed to provide protection did exactly the opposite. People lost a lot of money on both sides of their portfolio, the bonds and the equities, at the same time. In fact, historically... There's never been a period uh, during uh, when in, when inflation is above four percent in the United States. There's never been a period of negative correlation between bonds and equities or shares. In other words, when inflation is high, bonds and shares move in the same direction. They both go down, uh, and uh, and so people have started to talk about this private debt or private credit space, and this is where in Australia, it's growing. It's it's well established in Europe and in the United States. It's been going for decades and decades and decades. Uh, and really, it's been the preserve of high net worth investors, family offices and ultra high net worth investors. But now there are funds coming out in Australia uh, that are taking up the investment opportunity for retail investors, for everyday investors like you and me. And so... Um, the banks have been pulling out of lending to uh, some corporates uh, because if their economists are predicting recession, well, at precisely the time they should be lending and supporting the economy, they're pulling out and they're lending less. And that sometimes can actually bring on the recession. But what's happened now is uh, the gap between what corporates in Australia would like to borrow and what they can actually get is about $100 billion dollars. And so what we're seeing is private lenders now move into the space and offer, you know, the, the farmer who's got a two or $3 million crop of wheat that he needs to get off in the next few weeks, uh, but his header's broken, he needs $100,000 to fix the header. He only needs to borrow the money for two or three weeks or she. They only need to borrow the money for a few weeks or a few months. Uh, it's going to take six weeks for the big banks to process that loan application. And the farmer simply doesn't have that time. So they can now go to a digital lender or non-bank, uh, a non-bank lender, an originator, and they can get the money in 48 hours. Now, where does that money come from? It's coming from private investors like you and me who are investing money in private debt funds, and that money is being lent to that particular farmer. Now, they don't mind paying 12 or 13% interest because that's an annual rate. They're only going to be paying uh, that interest rate over 
a quarter of a year, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they might only pay $3,000 on that $100,000 loan, but they're going to get a 2 or $3 million crop of wheat off. And so they, they need to get that money and they need to get it quickly. So there's a lot of this starting to, to happen now. Uh, um, you've got to be careful where how do you, you're how do you know? Yeah, that's right. How do you know where... How do you know who's, yes. who's any good in this in this particular space? Well, well all of the providers, all of these uh, um, credit funds and private debt funds, they have to disclose in their product disclosure statements, they have to disclose to what sectors and what businesses the loans are being extended. So you might, for example, say, well, I don't want to lend to property developers. In the United States, for example, one of the safeguards that they put in after the GFC was to limit how much money can be lent to residential property developers by the big banks and to commercial property developers by the big banks. Because there's lots of businesses that fail. They're a very pro-cyclical business. So you might say, well, I don't want to lend to property development, for example. I don't want to... I don't want to uh, uh, to lend to. I don't want to put my money in a fund where there's only a, a handful of very big loans. I'd rather have ten thousand small loans. Hmm. Um, I, you know, you may say I don't want to be concentrated in one industry. I want it spread across lots of industries, and all of that needs to be disclosed. And and it is it has to be disclosed under Australian under ASICS regulations. Hmm. Uh, and so that's where you get that information. But it's important to find out that information before you go and invest. And that's why it's also important to seek personal professional advice to work out whether it's right for you. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, Kate from Castle Hill. Hi, Kate. Hi, hi. Just a question. In yeah. a recession, like I have shares, like, you know, super, is it best to, to diversify or have it in cash? Well, I think cash is a very dangerous place to invest in the long term. The longer you're in cash... The, the more certain the erosion of your capital will occur. So your purchasing power sitting in cash is always going down. And that's because cash only provides a 3 or 4% interest. Let's say it's 4% if you're in a one-year term deposit at the moment. But inflation, of course, is 6 or 7%. So at the end of the year, you are guaranteeing yourself less purchasing power than at the start of the year. The obvious advantage of cash is that it's an option over lower prices. So if the stock market or the property market does crash, well, you're going to be out because you've got some cash, you, you can buy those investments cheaper. Um, but they're not mutually exclusive. You don't have to be in all of one or all of the other. So your question actually answers it itself. Diversification is the smarter option over the long run. But of course, what I like to do is something called dollar crash averaging. So you've heard of dollar cost averaging, and that's where you invest uh, an equal amount at regular intervals over time. When prices are high, you're buying fewer units. When prices are low, you're buying more units. I like to sort of um, turbocharge that idea and call it dollar crash averaging. And that's where you do that. You invest a regular amount, the same amount at at regular installments. Uh, But when the market does crash, you actually put in a bit more than you did mm. before uh, and you take advantage of the inevitable bounce when that happens. Provided, of course, as I said earlier, you're focused on quality. Uh, you're not just buying with, you know, the, the hear no evil, speak no evil and see no evil. Uh, you, you, you're actually eyes wide open and looking for quality businesses to invest in or funds, actively managed funds that state that they're investing in quality and quality growth type companies. That's really important as well. Okay. Thanks, Kate. Um, Steve from Esperance. G'day, Steve. 
Hello, how are we doing? Not bad. Going well. Excellent. Now, my question is about IPOs. Mm -hmm. Initial public offerings? Yes. Yep, correct. What's, what's the I've question? Been, yeah. I've been contacted by a... Oh, no. Um, Has somebody a, called a you fairly, randomly? And, yes. Well, yeah. A fairly pushy company, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Saying that they've got this... Um, well, mm. they, they're going to offer me 20 to 40% return. Hang blah, up. Blah, blah. <laughs> Just hang up. Hang up. <laughs> Run. Hang up on them. Right. That's it. It's as simple as that. As tempting as it is, don't be tempted. Mm -hmm. uh, I had one of those calls on Friday. Someone called me up and they said, look, we've got this great opportunity. And I said, oh, yes, that's, that's interesting. Tell me about it. And, uh, and I said, look, you're running a scam. I'm not interested. Thanks very much. And you should get a job somewhere else. You're working for a company that doesn't, doesn't act um, uh, ethically. Oh. So um, just hang up on it. Hang up, hang up on it, Steve. Thank you. One three hundred eight hundred triple two. Oh, you like this question on the text line, uh, Roger? Yeah. It's made for you. Vinny, yep. Vinny says, "When's the next crypto bull run?" <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, um, Phil, Vinny, <laughs> it'll be it'll be August. August no, the 9th. No, you're wrong about that. It's no, no, it's September the 13th. <laughs> yeah, it's, I can't remember. I, I had it written down. Oh, come on. It was, I, no, a bloke told me. Actually, he told me. I'm, now, what did he say? It was, it was in the back of a taxi and I just can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, look, I don't know. Hey, Phil, the, the mm. thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about private debt funds, the whole reason they're, they're of interest at the moment is because they've actually, many of them have produced a really good track record to date. And, it, you know, obviously the mm. past is not a reliable guide to the future, um, but some of them are generating, you know, 7 8 9% income returns and paying monthly or quarterly income. So that's why there's been a lot of interest in that space, by the way. Yeah. Kate says, gee, this, this bloke's a bit scary. Private debt markets? Well, yeah, just have a look. Get some advice. But uh, Eyes wide open. Eyes, eyes wide open. Eyes wide open. And it's not for... And it's not for all of your money. No one's ever suggested. No, no. I'm just saying. I'm suggesting there might be for some people there might be an appropriate amount of your portfolio to actually exactly. invest, because you're 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 exposing yourself to hmm. um, to a part of the capital stack you can't get through the stock market. Exactly. All right, uh, Rog. We would love to keep talking, but sadly we can't because oh my gosh. time is beating like, us. Yeah, I know. It feels I know. like five minutes again. I know. I know. We'll talk a bit further down the track, Rog. Uh, Look forward to seeing you okay, soon. Thank you. Bye. Roger Montgomery from uh, Chief Investment Officer at Montgomery Investments. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife. 